Well, good morning, everybody. Um, good to see you. Glad you're here with us today. We're going to be continuing our study in Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles open up there, uh, I have to share with you that sometimes when you lead uh, a Bible study and you go back through things uh, that maybe you've read a long time ago or, or things that you've studied before, I, I've really found through this process of Romans and some through Acts when we were doing it that I'm appreciating what, here in Romans, what Paul has to say so much more. And I think Romans chapter 12 is a good example of that. Because I don't know what your experience with Romans chapter 12 has been like, but I know for me, uh, typically it's been covering the first couple of verses and then picking some things from, you know, in between that are really quotable. Romans 12 is pretty quotable. Um, and so I've gained a lot by studying the book more in depth over uh, these last few months, and that is uh, more true, I think, of this chapter than almost any other one that I've read so far. So let's take a look at what we've learned over the last couple of weeks. Uh, number one, God's mercy is the foundation that all of our Christian behavior is built on. So if you remember, in chapter 12, Paul starts talking about our behavior and what we do and, and, and what we should be like. And he makes it very clear from the beginning that we live our lives in view of God's great mercy for us, and our response to God's great mercy for us is to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices. Therefore, God's mercy is the why behind anything you do as a Christian. It, it, it motivates and defines your actions. And in this process, as we live our lives in view of God's mercy, we are renewed, our minds are transformed, so that we learn to think and see the world as God sees the world. And so the principle we took out of that first week was the basic principle was God over self, that we sacrifice ourselves for him. Last week, uh, we talked about how pride is the greatest danger to the Roman church living out their faith. And, and Paul gives them some warnings. We are not to be intoxicated with self-importance. Instead, we are to look at ourselves with sober judgment. Because if we allow our own self-importance to get in the way, it will lead us in the wrong direction. So instead, in view of God's mercy, we are to look at ourselves as we are, sinners in need of that mercy of God. When we are able to keep ourselves in check, our own ego, our own pride, and remember the mercy of God, it leads us to put others before ourselves. God before self, others before self. And then finally, we have been gifted by God. And God has given us gifts so that we might work together to create a new kind of community. Our gifts don't belong to us. In fact, once we are part of the community in the kingdom, we don't even belong to ourselves. We are, after all, living sacrifices dedicated to God. So our gifts and ourselves belong to God and the community. And God has gifted each of us differently. We are not all supposed to look the same, talk the same, have the same talents and abilities. 
we would accomplish very little if that were true of us. But instead, God intended for us to bring our gifts together so that we become something more than we could ever be on our own. We become the body of Christ. God before self, others before self, community before self. So reading through all these things and, and going through them very quickly again, it, it kind of makes me think that Paul really does not want us to put ourselves first. There is no room for self within the kingdom of God. I mean, go back to the Sermon on the Mount and everything that Jesus says. There is very little room, if any room at all, for self and for us to put our own interests first. So the big question is, okay, now we've, we've, we've talked about God for, before self and others before self, community before self. How do we do this? How do we do it? Because it's, it's one thing for me to stand up here and say these things to you as if it's so easy to go out and just put everything before you. I mean, we kind of like to be the hero of our own story. We like to be the main character. And so there is an innate difficulty for us to do these things. To always put these other things first. I mean, our feelings get hurt. We get mad at someone. We feel like our needs aren't being met. There are a million reasons for us to decide to put ourselves first, aren't there? So how do we put God first, put others first, put community first? What must we possess? And I told you uh, last week before we read this passage, there is a pretty simple answer. But it's one that has both been overused and because of that is now being disregarded as not that important. You kind of know what I'm talking about? It's like the word awesome, right? Now, technically, the word awesome means that when you see whatever is awesome, you are filled with awe. And awe is kind of a um, paralytic, if you will. You are struck right where you are in, in, in just the awe of whatever it is that you are seeing or engaging. And yet, we call so many things awesome, right? So there are sometimes words that are in our vocabulary that we use all the time that don't, we, they have lost their meaning because we're not applying them the way they should. So what is the thing that we need? Well, we need love, because love is the thing that makes this thing run. How many sermons have there been about love within churches over the years? Too many to count. What's one of the first songs that we learn as kids if we were in Bible school? Jesus loves me, right? Love is everywhere throughout our story. But here's what I want you to understand. Love is the mechanism that puts all of these things we've been talking about into practice. And that dictates what our behavior actually looks like when we go and start behaving. It's not just any kind of love, though, that Paul is wanting us to aspire to. 
Because let's face it, we love all sorts of other things as well, such as pizza and green beans and you know whatever else it is that we say we love. It's not just any kind of love, though. So one thing we need to note before we launch into this section is that um, Paul is talking about life within the community of believers. So he's still kind of following up on that whole, we are the body and we do all these things together. So let's start in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And we're going to start with just the first sentence. Coming out of all of this, all that he said, here's what, how he starts this section. Love must be sincere. Now, have you ever thought about why Paul feels like he needs to say, love must be sincere? Why must he say that? Because we use love for different things, sure. But think about this. What must he have seen before in order to say, love must be sincere? He must know what insincere love is. You know, the kind of love that says, oh, I love him, or I love her, but has no arms or legs. It doesn't go anywhere. Insincere love is not going to cut it if you are going to live this transformed life as a follower of Jesus, because the love that you are supposed to have as a community is different for the love you have for your favorite movie or your foods or anything else like that. Those things you see don't really ask anything from us. They're just delicious, and so we love them, right? But that's not sincere love. And we understand to a degree that when I say I love pizza, I don't mean I love pizza, right? We understand the difference. But Paul is, is bringing this out in another way, which means sometimes, apart from all the, the kind of the, the low-level ways we use the word love, we love insincerely within community, within those who are part of the body of Christ. We love insincerely. And if we love insincerely, we will never be able to put God first, others first, and community first. It's not going to happen. Because guess what you do love sincerely? Yourself. And if you don't love others sincerely, then you're not even going to get off, off the ground. We are to be devoted to one another in love, as Paul says later. And this sincere love is what leads us to put ourselves forth, God, others, and community. If we cannot love sincerely, I'm going to say this again, we cannot live the life that God intends for us to live. You can't. I'm not saying it's hard. I'm not saying you have to try harder. I'm saying without sincere love in your life, you cannot live as God wants you to live. Because what happens when you do good things for other people, but love is not involved? Well, Paul answers this question for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, 
and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You hear what he's saying there? The Christian life with all of its gifts do not matter if you do not love people sincerely. You are a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You are someone who is doing something for no reason, and maybe that something is good, and maybe it's even powerful in the way of God, but if you aren't loving, then none of it matters. Without love, nothing else matters. So let's pick it up the last part of that verse. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, I have a weird question for you, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious. How many of you have heard hate what is evil, cling to what is good, quoted on its own? Just, you know, you know like the Bible tells us, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Have you, have you heard that before? Where that section is, is put out there on its own. Um, that's not the verse. The verse is, love mu must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, making sure you read that that way, how does it change the way we interpret hate what is evil and cling to what is good? In my mind, it changes it completely. In my mind, it changes it completely. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Here's what I want you to know. If you want to enact the second part of that verse, which, honestly, Christians love publicly to enact the second part of that verse, you can't do it the way that Paul wants you to without the first part. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Why can't you do it without the first part? Because the second part, hating evil, does not give you permission to stop loving people who are not like you. But if you remove love must be sincere, we can get right to the hate what is evil part which allows us to draw lines around ourselves and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it certainly is we are about to see in a, in a couple of verses. These verses, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, they do not give us permission to judge, look down upon, or hate other people who sin. Inside the community or out. We are to hate evil because it is the enemy of things that, of, of what leads us to Christ-likeness. When God uh, seeks, what God seeks in the behavior is not so much like a single worthy act, like, ooh, I hated evil today, and that's so good, but this continuing quality of life where we continue to move forward and love sincerely, hate evil, and cling to what is good. We are to turn away from it and cling to what is good. The Greek participle comes from a verb that means to glue or to join together. So hold on, holding on tightly to that which is good becomes a necessity in view of who we are. So that's the second part of this. 
is that hate what is evil, cling to what is good, is not a warning to those who sin. It's a warning to you who is reading this verse. You need to be careful that you hate what is evil and cling to what is good because what is one of your biggest problems? Self. And we're still going to sin, right? So that, that verse is a warning to us that we need to be careful that we are clinging to what is good. You hate evil because of your own inclination to sin, not because others sin, and I think this is an important distinction. We are to be devoted to one another in love, putting uh, others before ourselves. And that word devoted means to love warmly and strongly. So you are to be so, so much in love with other people that you honor them over yourselves. And I have to be, just, just to make this clear, it is not that hard to honor people over ourselves if we sincerely love them. It really isn't. I mean, think about your children, if you've had children. Or, or think about an important member of your family, right? These, these people that you could look at that relationship and say, you know what, I sincerely love that person. It changes the way you treat them, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. So we are to be devoted to one another in love, and that allows us to put them first. Okay, let's go on to the next verse, 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, these verses are important, and have you, you know, sometimes that last part is one we overlook, but the Bible literally says practice hospitality. Like, that's, that's kind of a, fun, it was always a funny thought to me. But they're important because putting ourselves last is not easy. Being devoted to others is not easy. Loving sincerely is not easy. Therefore, we can't rely on ourselves to generate this kind of love and self-sacrifice all the time. Uh, we don't have that kind of power because that kind of love is not natural to us in such a broad way. This description of love that Paul's giving us is how God loves. And as we experience the mercy and love of God for ourselves, we are transformed and we slowly and painfully learn to love this way. Learn to sacrifice of ourselves and learn to put ourselves last. But the good news is, church, that we don't have to do it by ourselves. We don't have to do it by ourselves. God will give us what we need as we turn toward his mercy to love others in this way if we stay connected to him. So Paul says, don't lack in energy as you are growing into God what, into what God wants you to be. Keep your focus Keep your fervor, keep your energy up, because this is hard work, and you're going to get tired. There is joy, there is pain that tries our patience, but as we put others before ourselves, we begin to take care of one another as a community, because he's still talking to the community of believers at this point. And if you are in need, 
If you are hurting, if you are lacking love, if you are lacking support, if there are things in your life that just aren't right, Paul believes the community of Jesus is the place for you to be. Because they will take care of you. So I hope you have noticed something about this sacrificial way of living. Let's just play this out a little bit. As you love others and put them before yourself, they are doing the same for you. Just as you are looking out for others, others are looking out for you. And the person that you love and care for today may be the person who loves and cares for you tomorrow. This community is not an every-man-for-himself adventure. God has gifted us with one another. And the more we love and live into that community, the more you get back in return. So there's a fallacy we have to overcome. That by putting ourselves last, we are somehow going to hurt or suffer because of that. It's not true. Within the community of Jesus... When you put yourself last, others are putting themselves last too. Which means that in someone's life, in the church's life, you are not at the bottom. You have all these people holding you up above themselves. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Doesn't that make the community of Jesus different than any other community? It does. The, the community that Paul envisions is a wonderful place to be. So this is how he's telling us to move forward in community. We, we love sincerely. Uh, we hate what is evil. We cling to what is good. We do all these things. All right. This is how, this is the, the motor, the mechanism that makes it all go. However, you are not to only love those who believe in Jesus in this way. That's actually the easiest part is loving those who believe in Jesus in this way. And the next verse is Paul turns his eyes to those who are not part of the community. And listen to what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So as challenging as those previous things may be, this, to me, is where the rubber really hits the road in terms of what Paul is talking about. You are to bless those who persecute you and not to curse them. Now that word persecute is an important word in this sentence. Paul was speaking to people who were actively being persecuted because of their faith. They lived in an environment that was openly hostile to those who followed Jesus. And I don't just mean they disagreed with people who followed Jesus. People were in danger for following Jesus. So that clause right there, that, that sentence, is not something that Paul says, oh, this sounds good, let me throw this one in there. It's one of the more challenging things that he's talking about here with loving others. He expected the Christian community to bless those who were actively trying to destroy them. Bless them and do not curse them. Which reminds us, it should remind us, of something this one guy said one time. Um, I think his name starts with a J and rhymes with Jesus. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This idea of not retaliating for personal injury is all over the New Testament. And again, we're talking personal injury, persecution, enemies. It provides guidance when life brings us up against those who care nothing for us and are opposed to all that we stand for. And when we face anyone who would stand against you for any reason, you are to seek their blessing and not curse them. We are to bless them ourselves because sincere love inevitably desires the best for other people regardless of who they might be. Otherwise, it is insincere. You still with me? Okay. Because we've got some more fun things coming up. You are also to live your life with other people around you. The Christian community is not supposed to withdraw from a hostile world. In fact, it is to live in that world so that we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. How, hmm, okay. How easy is it for followers of Jesus to believe they are better than those who do not follow Jesus? So easy. So, so very, very easy. So it's interesting for us to know what Paul says in this section, which is you are to bless those and not curse them. And you are to rejoice with them and mourn with them and live in peace with them. Because, this is really crazy, your job as a Christian is not to change everyone else's behavior so that they look like us. Your job as a Christian is to introduce them to the overwhelming love of God. And just telling them about it isn't going to cut it. You have to love them, too. I want you to think about this statement for a moment. The problem in our world today is not that the world doesn't look like Jesus. It's the world. It's not going to look like Jesus. The problem in our world today is that Christians don't look like Jesus. And therefore, they are not having the impact that they could have. Feels a little personal, I know. Again, Paul says, don't be conceited, don't be proud, because those things, again, will lead you away, not only from God wants from you, but it will lead you away from having peace and blessing others, because pride sows the seeds of discord. It, it puts yourself first, and again, we are offended by so many things. So lastly, we are to be an instrument of peace to all. He builds on these ideas in verses 17 through 21. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the early church understood the necessity of having a good reputation with outsiders because they were new. And people didn't really know what much about Jesus or what Christianity was. So if Christians went out and acted like jerks to everybody, this is all they're going to know about Christianity, is that these people are not nice people to be around. So they understood that they had a responsibility to live in the world in a way that was going to make Jesus look good. Okay? And although it's imperative that believers take pains to do what is right in God's sight, it is also important that what we do, as long as it doesn't violate what God wants us to do, is well thought of by the world. What they think of us matters. Because what they think of us, they think of Jesus. Insofar as is possible, we are called to live at peace with everyone. Wickedness is, be, is to be opposed and righteousness lauded. Again, we are not supposed to live in sin. We are to avoid evil. But we have to be careful to not allow our allegiance to God to alienate us from the world that we are supposed to tell the gospel to. If our desire to be so right keeps us out of the living rooms of sinners, then we are off base. We're wrong about that. Why are we wrong about that? Well, who are we trying to be like as Christians? Jesus. And where did Jesus love to be? He loved to be around people that were a bunch of screw-ups and that had a bunch of problems and that didn't have everything figured out. He liked to be in their homes. He liked to be around them and eating at their tables. So do not repay evil for evil, or I would even say today, don't try to punish people who don't know Jesus for the evil that they do. Because getting back at those who stand against you is not the way of Jesus. Having them in your home for a meal without any pressure is the way of Jesus. Being in their homes and getting to know their family, that is the way of Jesus. And Paul takes it a step further. Christians are never to take vengeance into their own hands. Rather, you have to allow that God is going to sort all this out. It's not your job to figure it all out. I really love this passage from a commentary that I've been reading. And he says, Christians are not called upon to help God carry out divine retribution. We're not. We are not called to punish sinners around us. God has promised that he will take care of all of this, and he has no need for our help or our advice in how this should be handled. 
hallelujah is correct. Because if God had listened to someone else's advice about how to handle me, I would be in deep, deep doo-doo. Yes, I just said doo-doo. Our most powerful weapon against evil is good, church. It's not righteousness. It's not some sense of superiority. It's good. It's sincere love. That is how you fight evil. And now I'm going to rant for a second as we close out today. Nothing like a good rant to finish a sermon All of these principles matter so much to us today. And the reason why is because we live in the world, we live in a world where the name of Jesus is being dragged into so many discussions, and they are discussions where I think Jesus does not belong. At least not in the way that he's been putting out there. And when he is brought in, it is by people who who are not living the kind of life that Paul is describing here in Romans. And there was a big story that came out this last week that I wanted to talk about. The pastor of a Baptist church outside of Fort Worth made national news, I mean, across everything with his sermon, which was posted on the church website and promoted by them. His sermon was titled, Why We Won't Shut Up, which already tells you you're in trouble. And the tone of the whole sermon was angry and combative. And in particular, what this guy, who is not the main pastor, he's one of the associate pastors, what he was most upset about was the whole discussion about LGBTQ rights. He's angry about it. So here are some of the things he said. You know, a lot of pastors have this stupid idea where it's just like, oh, you know, God loves everyone and God hates the sin but loves a sinner. But people have taken this to such an extreme where they say, where they're saying, celebrate the sin, not just tolerate it. Celebrate it, he continued. Let me show you what the Bible says about these people. So he went to lay out his points. At one point, he told the congregation that gay people are dangerous to society and said that all homosexuals are pedophiles. And then he said these statements. I'm not saying that every single homosexual that's alive right now has committed that act with a child already because it could be they haven't had the opportunity yet and they will at some point later in their life. This is why we need to put these people to death through the proper channels of the government. These people are not normal. They're not your average everyday sinners. They have no hope of salvation. These people should be put to death. Every single homosexual in our country should be charged with a crime. The abomination of homosexuality that they have, they should be convicted of in a lawful trial. They should be sentenced to death. They should be lined up against the wall and shot in the back of the head. Yeah, that's a lot. Now, yes, church, this is an extreme view. I would argue it's not that extreme in different parts of our country today. And it's not being said, certainly like this, but some of these principles are certainly being lived out in how people who are not Christian are being treated. And I have heard too many messages from Christians that do not reflect Jesus. But Jesus is put into it anyway. 
This kind of violent, vengeful hate is not what Jesus is about, and I condemn everything this person says. He is wrong. Jesus, as we already said, loved to spend time with the worst kinds of people, with tax collectors and prostitutes, sinners of every shape and size. Where are the stories of Jesus threatening sinners? Where are they? You don't find them. You don't find them because he doesn't threaten sinners. He loved sinners. You know who he couldn't stand? Those people who stood up and told lies about who God is, who he loves, and who he does not. Those people he could not stand. What does God see when he looks down at his people today? Does he see division, anger, hatred, frustration? Does he see his people grasping for control of the world around them? Does he see his supposed children marginalizing people who are not different than who are different than them, not even giving them a chance? And I wonder when he looks at us if he is ashamed that we are associated with him. Paul makes it clear. Love people inside like you're supposed to. Love people outside in a way that makes no sense. Love people in a way that no one else would love them. Love them because you have been loved so well by a merciful God who did not hold your sins against you. And you didn't even have to ask him. You didn't even have to ask him. Don't try to seize power over others in an attempt to change who they are, because that is not introducing them to the love of God. It's not doing any of these things. Instead, you are called to treat everyone better than yourself. Which everyone's? All the everyone's. Better than yourself. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter where they've came from. Because let me tell you something. Part of the reason why some people hate the church so much is because they have been given reason by Christians to hate the church so much. And if you want to change their minds... Number one, you don't start with changing their mind about the church. Oh, but my church is really nice, and people are great, and Megan leads worship with a ukulele, and Bryce rants at the end of his sermons. You're going to love it. You don't do that. Because the biggest problem is not that they misunderstand the church. They understand the church all too well. The biggest problem is they don't know who Jesus is. And the people that know Jesus the most have not loved them. They have condemned them, pushed them as far away as possible, and tried to hurt them. I don't always know what to do with all of that. You know? Just to lay it all out on the line here. I don't always know what to do with all that, but I know how I feel about it. It bums me out. That's putting it lightly, but that's kind of how I want to put it right now. What I want us to understand 
from Romans chapter 12, a chapter I've read a million times and that I didn't realize was describing to me exactly what was needed. Is that this is what it looks like from Romans chapter 12 to live out the Christian life. It is loving, it is radical, it is not judgmental, and at time it makes no sense because it calls for us to live the opposite of the way we sometimes want to live. But if you want to start being like Jesus, it does not start with you doing all of the Christian things and condemning all that is not Christian. It starts with you being loved, changed, and transformed so that who you are is not the same. And that grows into a love of others that dwarfs a love of self. It reflects the Savior who willingly went to the cross at the hands of those who hated him, a God who lovingly sat at the tables of the most broken. That is what God wants to see when he looks down at his people in the world. A people who are changing the world by loving it. Amen?